Well, good morning. It is so good to see each and every one of you out this morning. So thankful for those of you who are joining with us that are visiting with us. And we uh, appreciate your attendance. And we, if you haven't already done so, fill out one of the, the visitor cards if it's your first time visiting with us. And you can hand that to me or, or any of the other men here that you, uh, this morning. We'd be happy to, to take that information so we can have a recollection of the time that you were here with us. We look for ways in which maybe we can serve you in your walk with the Lord. Um, thankful for, for Carl and for the, the song that he just led us in. It's thy heart right with God. Uh, if, if this morning at the end of this sermon, if you think that maybe your heart is not right with God, we encourage you to, to come and speak with us about that. Now, we can do all that we can to be pleasing and walk in accordance to His will. I want to invite you to take your Bibles out and open them up to John chapter 21 with me this morning. John chapter 21, spend some time looking at, at what is going on here at the last chapter of the book of John as, as the apostle, uh, self-described as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, describes the closing moments of, of the, the, the ministry of Jesus uh, and, and the things that he was preparing his disciples for. As we read in here, we will see that this comes after the resurrection of Christ, but in that time period before His ascension that we can read about in Acts chapter 1. And at this point, His disciples have went fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Now I want to spend some time in this chapter and glean from its message, a message that I hope uh, that hit closer to home for me and, and maybe will hit close to home to you and, and, and we, can, we can take something away from this. But before we do that, we need just a little bit of context um, of, of what's going on because we're going to see a, a great deal of discussion between Jesus and Peter in this chapter. And so maybe I do just a little bit to remind ourselves of, of Peter's relationship with Christ. If you look in Luke chapter 5, we're going to come right back to John 21. But in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it records the account of Jesus meeting uh, Peter for the first time. And in verses 4 through 6, says, When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, this is, is Peter, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. <clears throat> and when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. And so we see this, this first time that Peter meets Christ, he meets him on a very, very special circumstance. There's a miracle being performed in front of him. They've, they've been fishing all night long and they've not caught a thing. And now Jesus tells him after, after speaking from the boat, using the boat kind of as a platform to speak to the people, he turns to him and says, why don't you cast your nets over here? And, and just this a great abundance of fish that they catch, so much so the nets are about to break. And it has such a reaction uh, or impact on, on Peter. It says in verse 8, when he saw it, he fell down on Je at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. O Lord. So, so Peter immediately, and on seeing this, recognizing that, that there is more to this man than, than, than I have given, uh, I, I've given credit for. And we see Jesus' response to that in verse 10. He says to him, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And so when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed Him. So Peter is a person who, who upon seeing the power of Jesus, seeing, uh, hearing the words of Jesus, he, he recognized his own sinful nature and, and threw himself at the feet of Jesus and Jesus called him to come and follow Me. 
to go and to catch others and to tell others about what, uh, what, what I have said and what I have done. I think we should be able to relate to that. Every one of us uh, that, that, is, that has come to the Lord in obedience, that has come to the Lord in love, comes with a, a similar story, not quite with the, the, the uh, amount of fish and amount of water in it, but we come with a similar story of seeing the power of Christ. And then we skip back, uh, well, technically forward in his life, but back in the Bible to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is preparing his disciples for, for what is going to be the end of, of uh, his, his physical life and the beginning of this new life that, that, that will, he will receive as, as he was resurrected from the dead. And he says in verse 31, Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So Jesus is preparing them. He doesn't necessarily come out and spell it out to them at this point what's about to happen, but he's letting them know that something traumatic is on the horizon. Uh, and, and they are going to be they are going to be scattered. They are going to be uh, separated, and, and, and it describes a very fearful sort of uh, of event going on. And you see Peter's courage and boldness when he answers in verse thirty three. He says, "Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble." He comes with this boldness and this zeal that is just so just built into Peter and his personality. He says, "I don't think so, Lord." I don't think that's going to happen. I'm not going to be stumbling. Everybody else might, but I'm not. And Jesus responds to him, Assuredly, I say to you this night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And still Peter, not convinced, he says, even if I die with you, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all his disciples. And then we might jump over to John chapter 19. Continuing on in, in the story of Peter's life, John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. We have Jesus on the cross. Peter witnessing all of this. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. And they filled a sponge with sour wine, but put it on a hyssop and brought it to His mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. Bowing His head, He gave up His spirit. And after all of this, after all that has gone on, we get to John chapter 20 and verses 1 through 10, and we find Jesus resurrected from the grave. We find an empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, the first there, she runs and she tells John and she tells Peter, they have taken away the body of our Lord, and they both run to the grave. They run to the tomb and stepping in. Verse 6, Simon Peter came following him, went into the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. He saw the handkerchief that had been around his head and lying with the linen clothes, both folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed, for as they did not know the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own home. So now you have Peter who has, at this point, he, he was very bold, saying, no, I will never deny you. As we know, he, he, he does deny him three times. And now his, his Savior has died. And he's standing at the grave and the body is gone. And, and they don't really know exactly what's going on at this point. But in just in, in some time later, it says verse 19, the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. 
And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, I'm not going to lie, in class this morning, I thought, oh man, we're going to march all over my sermon this morning. We're gonna, we were talking about some of this and the impact that it had on them. Uh, but I think, I think we're going to be all right. But, you know, you think of that. This is, this is Peter who, who has denied the Lord, who, who is a, a, kind of the shell of the man that we saw, and he's, he's now come to the grave, and he's, the, the, the body is gone, and now they're with fear. They're, they're not with boldness. They're in fear of the Jews hiding, and Jesus appears to them, and they, He shows them the, the scars. He shows them the disfigurement that is, that is still a part of His physical body, and they were glad when they saw the Lord. And now, now let's turn over to John chapter 21. Because John chapter 21 reveals even more about Peter and about Christ and the love that he has as we continue on learning the rest of Peter's story. So John chapter 21, let's begin reading verses 1-3. through We're going to see the disciples have returned to fishing. It says, After these things, Jesus showed Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or maybe at the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, He showed Himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, We are going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. This should sound just a little bit familiar to us. This, this is something that happened very on as we talked about in Luke 5 in, G, in Peter's life uh, in, in relationship to Christ. And we see the disciples have moved back to what they knew before Christ. And several of them were called, who were called were fishermen by trade. And there's two scenarios that are possibly playing out here. One is that they have returned to their former life of fishing. They have abandoned the call that they had received to follow the Lord. And there's a lot of people that read this and think that. I don't tend to lean that way. I don't tend to think that because they had seen the empty tomb. They had seen the body gone and it says they believed. Now, whether or not they believed that He had resurrected or believed the story of Mary Magdalene that the body is missing, they believed and then following that they had seen the risen Savior. They had seen Jesus in that, in that closed assembly in the room. They had seen His hands and His side and they were glad. That had lifted their spirits. So, so I don't really tend to think that he had just abandoned all of that, having seen this miraculous resurrection of his Savior. So maybe a more possible scenario is that they now Jesus is not uh, you know, appearing to them and staying with them. He is there and then He is gone. And, and, and this is going to be the third time that He appears to them in this account. But, but maybe they were trying to provide for themselves and trying to provide for those that were nearest to them. And they were just waiting. What, what are we going to do? Our Savior he, he is arisen. We have seen Him, but we don't really know what we're supposed to be doing. And so they've turned back. <laughs> to what they knew before Him. Maybe waiting for the time in which He would give them something to do. Either way, either way in this, in Peter's life, there seems to be a lot of uncertainty right now. Seems to be as if he's just really not for sure where to go. Where, where am I pointed to at this point? And this seems to be very different. Drastically different from just a, a, a short period of time before, possibly maybe a week, week and a half before <coughs> Excuse me. At the triumphal entry, when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on the colt, and people were shouting praises to him and, and welcoming him as a king, and here, here Peter walks as kind of his entourage. I'm with the king, and he's coming into his people. And this man, this is what we've been waiting for. And now he's 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 showing up here and there, and we're afraid of those people, and we're hiding from them. 
There seems to be a lot of uncertainty going on. And so in the next verses, we see Jesus reveal Himself this third time to him. It says in verse 4, When the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered Him, No. And He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast, <clears throat> and, so they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. <clears throat> So again, Jesus performs a miracle and He reveals Himself. And they, they couldn't recognize Him, it says in verse 4. They, they didn't know that it was Jesus standing on the shore. And maybe that was because it was early in the morning. Maybe it was because he, <coughs> he was hidden from them because of the light of day. Maybe it was because of the scars. We know that He carried the scars of the crucifixion on His hands and on His side. Do we ever think about maybe the fact that some of the other scars were carried with Him as well? Maybe, maybe he had, had um, hidden himself from their view in such a way as they wouldn't recognize him as he did oftentimes passing through the crowds. And whatever it was, he was hidden from their view in some way. And he asks them, have you caught anything? Now, if you're a fisherman, I know Richard is, you, don't, you really don't prefer that question when you haven't caught anything. When you fished all day long and there's nothing biting and you're just not able to catch anything, somebody comes, how are you doing? you're probably going to say, nah, don't talk to me about that. I don't want to talk about that. He says, have you caught anything? Have you any food? They say, no. And he says, cast it off on the right side. And we see that in their efforts, in their efforts to provide, in their, in their efforts to gain, they have been fruitless. But we also see that with the divine guidance that Jesus gives them, it leads them to success when He instructs them to cast their nets to the other side of the bolt. And, and immediately, it's not that they caught you know, a, a really large fish. You know, sometimes I think of when, whenever I was fishing, and maybe this is the reason that I'm just not much of a fisherman today, I couldn't take pleasure in catching a bunch of fish. I wanted to catch one fish, the big fish, the one that we could put on the wall, the one that we could tell stories about. We could catch a hundred fish all day long. I didn't care. I want the big one, not the little ones. But Jesus doesn't provide for them a, a large fish. He provides for them a multitude of fish, so much so that they couldn't draw it in. And it's at this point in the narrative that all of a sudden it becomes clear to them just who this is. And so in verses 7-14, through 14, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. And then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. And Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153 and although there, was no, there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared to ask Him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. And this is now the third time Jesus showed Himself to disciples after He was raised from the dead. So Peter's response to John's realization. This is none other than Jesus. It reveals the heart that Peter had. I think sometimes we tend to forget that even though Peter didn't always, he didn't always walk in such a way that was worthy of emulating, he had a heart that was on fire for the Lord. As before, 
He left fishing. Jesus, when he realized who Jesus was, he left that behind to become a fisher of men. And again, when he realized this is Jesus on the shore, he leaves fishing. He leaves the boat. He jumps straight into the water and he starts heading to Christ. When they get to shore, they find a fire. They find a a meal prepared. The the bread and, and some fish have been prepared for them. And Jesus says, bring some of the fish you caught. I find that interesting. He didn't need what they had caught. He didn't need what they had to bring to Him. He already had something to offer. But nonetheless, He says, bring to Me what you've caught. And in following this command of the Lord, Peter learns the extent of this great catch. The 153 large fish and the wonderment that the nets have not broken. The nets are still intact. And then they set to eat this meal with Christ. And I just can't help but notice the close proximity that Jesus draws to His disciples after His resurrection. He draws close enough to Mary Magdalene to which He has to instruct her, don't don't cling to Me. Don't hold to Me because I have not yet... I've not yet ascended. He appeared in a closed room with the disciples and He's close enough that He can instruct Thomas who did not believe. He said, touch my side. Touch my hand. And now He's sitting with the disciples and He's eating a meal with them. This is, this is a closeness that He has with His disciples after He has been raised. And then in verses 15-19, through 19, we have this discussion that He has with Peter. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And thus, this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, as we continue on in the story, we have some closing comments made by John. We have probably one of the most impactful comments that that he says in verse 25. There are many other things that Jesus did, which were written one by one. I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But this was. This was recorded for us. This was recorded so we would learn and so that we could grow closer to God. And in this discussion, three times Peter is asked, do you love me? And Peter had denied Christ Three times. And three times he's given an opportunity to respond to that question. But the words that he uses there, the words are so interesting to me. Because Jesus asks him that first time, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? But he uses the word agape. You know, we lose that in this English translation. We just have the word love and love and love. But he doesn't say love. He says, do you agape me? That word agape, that is a love that is extended without reciprocation. That is a love that is extended despite what you're going to get back. That was why we sometimes call it a sacrificial love. Because I'll give it to you, and I may not get anything back for it, but I'm still going to give it to you. That's the kind of love that God shows the world. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated His own love. God demonstrated His own agape towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave His Son knowing, I may not get this love back. They may not respond to this, but I'm going to give this love anyway. I'm going to give them My Son to die on their behalf. And so He asked Peter that. Do you agape Me? Do you have this unreciprocated love, this sacrificial love to me more than these? And that question has brought up a lot of, uh, a lot of debate. What is the these in this? Is it, is it the fish and the fishermen and the material and worldly things that they had involved themselves in uh, this morning? Or was it the other disciples whom, whom Peter had boldly stood before in Matthew 26 and said, I don't care what these guys do. I'm going to love you. Even if I have to die, I'm going to love you. Jesus asks him, do you agape me? And Peter responds, I phileo you. Now phileo, phileo is the kind of love that the world is well associated with. Phileo is the love that is reciprocated. Phileo is the love between brothers, between family, between friends. It's whenever we have a relationship and you give to me and I give back. And so Jesus says, do you love me and, and leave it all on the table and even if you get nothing in return, do you love me more than these? And he says, I love you like a friend. I love you like a brother. And then he asks him again. Maybe a little bit more direct this time. He doesn't put the qualifier in there, do you agape me more than these? He just says, do you agape me? Peter, do you love me enough to sacrifice for me? And again, Peter responds, Lord, you know, I phileo you. I love you because of the relationship we have. I love you because of the love you give me. I give that love back. And maybe that's why the third time, maybe that's why it is just a little bit more distressful to him. Not only does that bring up the memory to him, three times I denied this man, but he doesn't say agape the third time. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me like a brother? Do you reciprocate the love that I reciprocated to you? Because in my moment of, weak, or of trial, in my moment of, of, of hardship, you didn't, you didn't just say you didn't love me. You say you didn't know me. You denied even having anything to do with me. This is some of the hardest passages in, in for, for me to read because I feel like I can relate so well to Peter. And, and, and just to, to see Peter, and, and, and this had to be crushing to him. This had to be gut-wrenching to him to have, have Jesus ask this. And yet three times he asks him. He calls to question his love. Three times Peter, I think, answers as honestly as he's ever answered in his life. Yes, Lord, I love you. My love is based on the relationship that we had. And I think Christ knew this, and that's the reason He asked these questions. But He also gives Him some feedback. Each time He asks Him, He gives Him something to do. Number one, feed my lambs. Cares with the idea of, of provide nourishment for, for these, these young, uh, young creatures. And then He says, tend my sheep. Which is the idea of shepherding and, and leading a more mature creature and then feed my sheep. Which carries with the same idea of the first one, only with more maturity. He's calling Peter into service. If you love me, if you do, then be a minister to the needs of my people. Lead and shepherd my people. 
And now some have taken this as, as, as with other, other denominations, they've taken this as a, a call for Peter for the papacy. Uh, or Peter for a great elder, or Peter for a great bishop. They, they've taken this as a call for Jesus to Peter to some high, high level. But what's interesting is, is John records all this. John writes the book of John after the death of Peter. Peter has been crucified by, by Nero. And, and John doesn't record anything about Peter going on to to anything more than that of an elder of the church, really Peter records that, not John. Peter just records, or John just records Peter as we should see him, a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, someone who loved Christ, someone who fell short, someone who was given the responsibility to continue working. And he reveals that in the way in which he would die in verses 18. <clears throat> And, and history does record that Peter did die at the hands of Nero, crucified on a cross, upside down at his own request. But it's those next words that just seem to cut through everything that has gone on. He says, Peter, follow me. I hope those words echo in our hearts today. Because there's so much application that comes from this. There's so much that we can learn from John chapter 21. The first thing that I want to talk about, and just a few things, points I'll make, and the lesson will be yours. The first thing that I want to notice is that when we fail, or, or excuse me, you are not a failure. You are not a failure when things aren't going how you expect that they should be going. Just because things aren't going the way that you expect they should be, or just because things don't look like how you expect they should look like in the church, you are not a failure. Or even if things don't look how you expect they should look in your own life, that does not make you a failure. I want you to consider just for a moment what Peter expected of the coming Messiah as a Jew. Ezekiel chapter 37 says that this one who is coming will build the third temple. And now the, the, the temple had been rebuilt. It was built by Solomon, and then it was built again. It was rebuilt by the Jews that returned from exile by, uh, in the days of Ezra. And then there was a, a, another project to, to restore and rebuild the temple uh, and, and all the, the, the walls around it by, by Herod. But, but the Jews were really looking for this one who would come and rebuild this great temple, a third temple, a temple that would last. They were looking in Isaiah 43 for someone who would gather all the Jews back to Israel. They were spread out all over the land because of the Assyrian and Babylonian empires, because of the, the Medes, the Persians, the Grecians, the Romans. They had scattered them everywhere. We're waiting for that Messiah who's going to come and draw us all back in. And we're waiting, Isaiah chapter 2, for that Messiah who would usher in peace. And not like the peace that they now, they now understood uh, under Rome. Roman law where, where you, had, you had peace as long as you got along with Rome, as long as you kept Rome appeased. No, a peace that involved us being the leaders of all this land, ruling this land. And so therefore, Peter, along with many other Jews, they're looking for a Messiah that's coming to establish a worldly kingdom. He's going to come and He's going to sit on a worldly throne. He's going to rule their throne. He's going to be that rock hewn from the mountain and it's going to crush Rome. And you know, hindsight being 2020, Peter finally gets how Jesus was the rock hewn from the mountain. How Jesus did establish a kingdom and how He does rule from His throne. But right now, right now, Peter's looking for a Messiah to establish a worldly kingdom, and he just got crucified by the Romans. 
He just got put to death. And yes, he's been raised from the dead, and we've, we've seen him now, but that really can't feel like a huge victory. If, is, is, is this going to be his, his take two on what he, what he came to do? And now at this point, he's showing up here and there, and, and he's not got this relationship with him that he had before the, res, the, the crucifixion. And, so, uh, and definitely he hasn't evicted Rome. And, and so, so Peter has to be in a time where, where this does not look like what I expected it to look. And on top of all this, in his time of trial, I denied him. In his time of trial, I was not there for him. And maybe we would ask the question, had Peter failed? And I would say that Peter had faltered. I don't think I would say that Peter had failed. In fact, Peter goes on to be a pillar of the church. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches that first great sermon on the day of Pentecost, revealing to men the will of God and His desire for them to be saved through obedience to Him. He calls them to repentance and to baptism, the same men who had crucified the Lord. But you know, we go a little bit further in in Peter's life. We find him not being a tool for, for the Lord, but being a tool for Satan. In Galatians chapter 2, when, whenever he is, he is promoting racism amongst the Gentiles and the Jews. So I wouldn't say that Peter here was, was a failure. I'd say this was a time when Peter was faltering. In other words, I would say Peter, Peter was people. Peter was just like me, and Peter is just like you. There are times in which we walk with the Lord, and things are going as we expect them, and we walk with great faith. And there are times when we allow fear and uncertainty to creep in and cause us to falter and stumble. And all too often we find ourselves thinking, looking at the circumstances that we are under, and thinking things don't look good, I must be failing. But what I want us to know is we're not failing when things don't look good. We're failing when things don't look good and we don't look to God. We're failing when things don't look like they should, and and instead we turn to ourselves and we look to, what am I doing wrong? What can I do better? Instead of looking to God and asking for God's guidance, for His, His direction in our lives, studying His Word, and opening our hearts to Him in prayer. And that brings up our next point. That's self-reliance. Self-reliance makes weak-willed Christians. When you think back to the confidence Peter had, number one, there's nothing wrong with confidence. But his confidence was anchored in himself. I will never do this. If everyone else does, I will never abandon you, Lord. When our confidence is anchored in ourselves, so often we find ourselves drifting farther from the Lord. I can't help but think, maybe because of the the upcoming class on Nehemiah, but the the confidence that Nehemiah had, not anchored in what he could do, when he learns of the trouble in Jerusalem, he prays to the Lord, he fasts, and he waits for months before he approaches the king. And even then, he approaches the king because he's thrust into that situation. And what's he do? He prays again. All too often we find ourselves thinking, I don't have to worry about maybe this certain sin over here. I don't have to worry about fornication or I don't have to worry about drunkenness or or I don't have to worry about lying. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Those are sins that don't affect me. I don't have to worry about those. Or we find ourselves very zealous to jump into someone else's life and I'm going to show you everything that you're doing wrong. Or maybe we even take take so much pride in being the saved people of God. You know, Peter needed to learn a lesson that that publican demonstrated. When, the, when Je- Jesus noticed the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee prayed and was so, so uh, just full of, of 
pride for what he was and what he was not. But that publican demonstrated when he prayed, beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. His confidence, his confidence wasn't in himself. His confidence was in what God could provide for him. And so Jesus, He tells Peter, you're going to deny Me. And Peter, in all the confidence that he has, begins denying Him that very second. You're going to deny Me. No, I'm not. Even if everybody else does, I will never do that. And even now, in John chapter 21, He's relying on His former life, relying on what He knows to provide for what He needs. And, and even though that is required of us, to provide for those we love, Jesus, He's going to use that moment to teach G, uh, Peter just another valuable, valuable lesson. And that lesson is what I have to offer, what Jesus has to offer, it's both abundant and it's sufficient. He taught them two lessons that morning with the fish. The first one was that what God offers, and it's seen in, in this catch of fish, it's far more abundant than you can even fathom. They had caught nothing. It had been nice to catch one or two or, 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 or ten. I don't know. I, I, I have no idea what fishing with a net actually provides. But they, they would have been nice to catch something. And they cast that to the other side. They catch this abundant amount of fish. And Peter was so surprised that the nets had even held together with such a large number of fish. And likewise, today God is able to do more than we can ask or we can imagine. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 tells us. And so sometimes we get this into our mind saying, you know, this is what needs to happen. This is what needs to happen for growth to occur. This is what needs to happen for repentance to occur in somebody's lives. And, and certainly we must preach the truth. I'm not taking anything away from what is required of us. Preach the truth in season, out of season, when it's popular, when it's unpopular. We need to be doing our work. But we need to remember, God's work comes first. God's work is more powerful. God's work is more abundant and His ability is more abundant than what we can even imagine. So sometimes it would be better for us to get out of God's way and remember that the Gospel is His power to save. That's what we're bringing to the world. That's what we're bringing to people. Here's what God has to say. This is His Gospel of His Son who came and died for you. And let's let that power work in them instead of trying to imagine the ways in which we think it would be better. But number two, the second thing He taught them was that Jesus didn't need a great number of fish to provide what was needed. You know, sometimes we think Jesus needs the best preachers. Jesus needs the best teachers. He needs the best caregivers and the best Bible students. He needs the best to be able to reach others. And there's no doubt in our minds that we should be striving to give Him the best that we have. But Jesus did more with a few pieces of bread and a, and a few fish than He ever did with an all-you-can-eat buffet. He took a little... He took what we would consider weak, what we would consider insignificant, and He used that to vast abilities. So we need to take the first lesson. That God can do more abundantly than we can fathom, and we need to apply that to the second lesson. We need to be the fish breakfast. Even if we feel like we're not the best that, we have, uh, that, that the world has to, to, to bring God's message to them, let's remember what God can do Let's remember what Jesus can do. His, his, what He provides is sufficient. And then lastly, last thing that I want to think about is Jesus and Peter's conversation. Did you notice what Jesus asked Peter over and over and over again? He asked him about His love. 
You notice he didn't say, Peter, will you obey me? You notice he didn't say, Peter, will you repent? He didn't say, Peter, will you make a vow to never, ever deny me again? He said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me sacrificially? Do you love me despite what you're going to get back? Do you love me as a brother? Do you love me wholly and completely? And he doesn't have to ask for obedience. And he doesn't have to ask for repentance. And he doesn't have to ask for promises and vows because the answer to that question is the answer to those questions. If Peter loves him, then Jesus knows. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He doesn't have to call him to this, to this obedience and, this, and, 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 and these repentance. He doesn't have to call him to those things. He calls him to love him. And he knows with love, these things will spawn out of that. And so our question today, for each and every one of us here, Jesus would ask us, do we love him today? Do we love him agape? Will we sacrifice? Will we give our love to Him despite what we're going to get back? And sometimes when we give our love to the Lord, we don't get much back in regards to earthly pleasures, temporal promises. In fact, sometimes as Peter learned, if you're going to follow Me, you're going to march to your death. It's going to be a painful existence. But do you love Me? And like Peter, if you love Jesus, love Him enough to give yourself up, to give up this world, to have a reciprocal relationship where you receive from Him and you give back to Him. And if you will do that, as I said, it will put you at odds with the world. A world that doesn't share these beliefs. But as Jesus called to Peter, so He also calls to each and every one of us this morning, follow Me. Can we help you with that this morning? Have you, like Peter, been uncertain about this life? Whenever we look at the, at the moral landscape of our, of our country, uh, the political and, and, and economical turmoil that seems to, to ebb and flow throughout the past several years, when we look around us, it's hard not to be filled with uncertainty. But Christ is calling us. He's calling us to follow Him. To follow Him with love. To follow Him with, with a, a heart that gives everything to Him, not expecting anything in return, but knowing that it's going to get riches and, and, and treasures beyond imagine. Maybe not in this life, but in the next. If you haven't started that walk with Him today, He calls you to come. He draws you closer than you were yesterday and to grow deeper in His wisdom and His love. And if we can help you to do that, to come to Christ, to receive from Him the salvation that He offers, or to return to Him once again, won't you please let it be known right now. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.